Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the third, and I'm sorry to say, final hour of the Live with Rank program today. God willing, I'll be back in this saddle or in the studio tomorrow morning. As promised, I have online with me Keisha Russell. She's counsel at the First Liberty Institute. And they concentrate on religious liberty matters and First Amendment rights, as we still have them right now. And she wanted to come on air to discuss uh, the current nominee right now for the Supreme Court. Uh, it's Katong. Uh, I've always, and I even phonetically have spelled this, uh, Katanji, that's it, Katanji Brown Jackson. So her being a lawyer, knowing much more about this than I do, I said, sure, I would love to have you on and to come on and talk about the the background of Miss Jackson, as well as her, uh, more importantly, her political leanings and what she did or didn't do on the court. Is there any little nuggets that they found in their research, doing some background research of her, that can help us understand uh, what we may be uh, experiencing here very, very shortly? So let's go to the phone lines and Welcome, Keisha Russell. Welcome, Keisha. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, you heard what I said. Uh, what, what, what should we be concerned with or not when it comes to this nominee? Well, I'll start with the or not. I mean, she's certainly qualified. She's you know has a great um, educational background. She went to Harvard for undergrad, and she also went to Harvard Law. She's been on the bench for about eight years. So she started at the D.C. Circuit uh, District Court, and now she's on the Court of Appeals. She's been there for about a year. So in terms of, you know, her qualifications on paper, all of that seems to check out. Uh, the things we should be concerned about is sort of her ideological positions on um, judicial interpretation, how she, basically what she believes the role of a judge is. Um, and whether she believes that the original meaning of the Constitution and our um, federal and state laws should be uh, incorporated or whether she should be able to adjust or reinterpret those laws in order to satisfy a particular ideological position or her political views. I've always said about the Constitution because it always seems to be the fight between the written word and what they like to call the living document. Mm -hmm. And my thought is, and I'd love to get your thought on this, and then we'll get back into uh, Ms. Jackson. It, it, when it comes to this statement, uh, am I off track? I am not a trained lawyer. I always believe that anyone who believes that the Constitution is a living document then really doesn't believe, totally believe in the written law. Because if the Constitution is up for interpretation by people in the Supreme Court then the law is not the Constitution, but the nine people sitting in the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, their job is to apply the law 
as it was written in the Constitution. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is is exactly right. So um, a lot of sort of the liberal philosophy of, of judicial interpretation is that you can sort of reinterpret the Constitution and uh, the original meaning of that document based on what is now culturally acceptable or um, based on the cult- current cultural expectations, right? What, what do people want now, and how does that differ from what the Constitution said or protected originally? The problem with that, with that is that you're going to end up alienating and discriminating against people because their views are no longer popular or um, liked or appreciated, right? And so that's why you sort of see this shift in um, position towards, say, things like religious liberty and conservative views and things like that. Because if you end up reinterpreting the law to outlaw those things or to not protect those things, then you're going to start getting sort of an underclass of people who believe them. Right. And, and, and again, if you believe something is a living document, then it's you who's actually the law. You nine are the law, not, exactly. a, not a law that was written or passed. That would be like me going to my mortgage company and I have a contract with them and saying that, well, I, I'm, I'm interpreting this mortgage document as a living document. And in doing so, I'm making less now, so I'm going to pay you less. Right. They're not going to accept that. They're going to say, hey, it is contract law. It's written there. Stick to it or not. Now, when it comes to her, you wrote an op-ed that was published in the Washington Times. And you wrote that she has a very high rate of her decisions being reversed. Can you expound on that as well as why that should concern people? Yeah, so when she, she's on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, as I mentioned, and she's only been there for a year, but while she was a district court judge there, she was there for seven years, so she wrote in excess of about 500 orders, and she was overturned at about a rate of about 11%, which is relatively high uh, for a federal judge. And so what that sort of means and, and what it definitely indicates is that she could have, as I mentioned before, an inc- uh, indica- inclination towards bending the law in order to reach a particular political position. So how do we know that? Well, one of the cases was a case concerning the Trump administration wanting to adjust the deportation um, timelines. And she said they did not have the authority to do that. Now, what's interesting is that the court that overturned her, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, is made up of a majority of Democratic appointees, which means even the people who somewhat fit her ideological position on certain things were still not, still did not agree with her interpretation of the law. Um, and so that, that should be concerning because I think there's an indication there that she's, she's willing to uh, sort of reinterpret the law in order to reach a particular position that she's more comfortable with or believes is right under the circumstances. And us as novices to the law, 11% reversal rate, which you say is high, what should that mean to us, that she is not following the written law? Is that what it mm-hmm. means? Yeah, it just means that the the law is what it is, whether you want it to be a, another way or not, right? The judge is supposed to interpret the law as it is, not as the judge wishes it, that it were. And that kind of reversal rate kind of indicates that she may be reinterpreting the law in order to fit her political positions. Um, and that's something that should really concern someone, particularly who's going to be a Supreme Court justice, because you, you want a justice that's going to be 
unbiased and impartial and uphold the independence of the bench. And someone who's going to do that may not um, be able to uphold those things. So in your research and her background, where does your your group, First Liberty Institute, stand on her nomination? Well, you know, although we think that she's qualified in terms of her education, we think it's an, it's not a, a good fit for the Supreme Court because of her judicial philosophy, because of her positions. Um, we're obviously a religious liberty law firm, and we want to make sure that a justice is going to uphold the integrity of uh, particularly the free exercise clause, the establishment clause, all of those things that you know, are under fire on a regular basis now. And so we definitely want a judge who's going to interpret the Constitution as it was written, not the way the culture wants it interpreted or the way she might want it interpreted, but the way it should be interpreted. Um, and we want all of our, our clients to get a fair shot when they're in front of the Supreme Court. We have three cases there right now at the Supreme Court. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a big deal to us. And do you believe, where does she stand on religious freedom? Can you tell? Well, she did write an amicus brief, which is the kind of brief, you don't have to write that. That's called like a friend of the court brief. Right. It's something right. you write in support of a case. Um, and she wrote a brief on behalf of abortion providers and groups. And she was uh, pretty antagonistic to some religious groups that wanted to um, minister and speak to uh, women who uh, were entering into abortion clinics. Um, and she wanted to sort of ban them from being able to enter these, quote, free speech zones. Um, and so something like that is really concerning because that, you know, gives you the impression that that's actually her personal position because she's choosing to write this amicus brief. It's not just the client she's supporting that has that position. Right. When someone writes that friend of the court brief or amicus brief, that is them speaking from the heart, I would say. They're not being paid to do so. They're saying, I'm going to jump on this and I want people to know my uh, opinion of it, correct? Yeah, it's definitely something that you you would choose. If, I mean, that amicus briefs are usually something that you, you, if you're inclined to do, based on your own political positions and persuasion. Right. So that's something that directly can say that she wouldn't be friendly to uh, religious freedom, is my my thought. You you wrote too in that Washington Times op-ed that in the eight years she was serving on the bench. She only wrote two opinions. You said 500 orders earlier, but only written two opinions. Only, that seems, only wrote, that seems very a, little to me. Only two opinions while she's been on the Court of Appeals in the last year. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I, I thought maybe it was the one she was on the, in the previous eight years. Uh, I got gotcha, you, I got gotcha. you. All right, well, you know, you keep bringing up how she's well-educated with Harvard. I, I would much rather have someone from Emory University uh, than <laughs> Harvard uh, because, you know, th th those, uh, uh, the, the, those, those schools tend to uh, spit out the same type of non-free-thinking people uh, too mm -hmm. often. Really quickly, and, and I wanted to ask you this question. I asked her off-air if I could ask this question. Uh, Keisha is a black woman, is a lawyer, and all we hear from the left is black, 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 black for this, for Miss Jackson, uh, and that she's a black woman. Are you as a black woman who is a lawyer uh, offended that the Democrats see, see her color and sex first and then, and then possibly somewhere down her accomplishments? Well, I'm not offended. I mean, that's what Democrats do, so it doesn't surprise me. I think 
it, it, it does, I think, speak volumes that the president thought it was okay to say he was only going to consider black women. I think that's problematic, right? It's obviously racist. Right. <laughs> and Thank you. The law, Thank right, you. For him Thank to you. do that um, and to be so public about it. I think it's perfectly fine for him to choose, of course, a black woman once he assesses her qualifications and compares her to all the other people who are in the pod and decides, okay, this person's is the best fit for what I'm looking for. You know, I don't expect President Biden to choose someone um, whose ideological beliefs I would agree with because of his ideological beliefs, right? Right. But I certainly would not expect a sitting president to say he's going to only choose a certain race and gender. I mean, I, I think that's pretty appalling. Um, the best thing about being a lawyer is that when you pass that bar exam, you pass it the same way everyone else did because it's blind grading. No one knows who you are, where you came from, who your parents are. You passed it like everyone else. And so I think that she deserves that. I think we all deserve that. Well, as I said, you know, for a 50-something-year-old white guy, all he had to do was choose her. Right. He didn't have exactly. to make it a big uh, you know, to do that. It's going. In fact, like you said, if anybody else said that I have a job here, I want to hire a producer for the Live with Rank show and I'm only going to hire X color and XX. That would be against the law, would it not? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And I would be in trouble and uh, he doesn't get in trouble. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with us today, Keisha. I appreciate that. Good luck. Thank you. You have a great day. You too. 269-441-9595. Lines are back open. Your thoughts? We'll be right back. You listen to Live with Rank Show. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate Keisha for coming on. An experienced lawyer working with the Liberty Institute. Or I should say First Liberty Institute. I hope that gave you a little bit more insight into who this nominee is and the thoughts of other lawyers. And of course... None of us are going to be naive enough to believe that he's going to put someone who uh, believes in the Constitution as a written document, not a living document. As I stated, and, and I, I thought of this coming in this morning into the station. For some reason, I could not sleep last night, and I woke up very, very early. And it just came to me in my thoughts about the show today and thinking about my interview with Keisha. And I, I, I want to, I, I jotted it down so I made sure I got it right. Here it is. Anyone who believes that the Constitution is a living document then does not totally believe in the written law. If the Constitution is up for interpretation by the people in the Supreme Court, then the law is not in the Constitution but in the nine people sitting in the U.S. Supreme Court. Their job is to apply the law in the Constitution as written. What do you guys think? If someone can just interpret and mangle and twist and turn and think that this is maybe what they were, then... It is them who's creating law. It's their law. It's not everybody's law. I was telling you earlier about Michigan facing shortage of primary care physicians and it's supposed to get worse by 2030. I, I, I wish the article would have informed us why. I 
gave you a lot of different examples of or questions that I had. Still don't know why. Also, this I wanted to tell you about. Election officials across Michigan will soon have access to millions in federal funds for a wide range of security improvements ahead of the 2022 election. Well, if we had the cleanest security we've ever had in our lifetime, last election, why do we need to be spending millions of dollars to improve it? How does the Detroit Free Press, who wrote this headline, but they're all writing them, how do they write these headlines and not chuckle to themselves? Or maybe they do. Because every day they'll try to tell you anytime anything comes up with the 2020 election, it was the greatest election of all times, no problems. Remember all the officials that came out and said that? But what do I always tell you? Don't listen to these buffoons. See what they do. And if they're going to spend money to strengthen the security. Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't be spent. I'm just saying you can't sit there and promote that it was the greatest election ever in the history of elections, that there was no uh, you know, monkey business going on, that everything went fine, and every time anything about the election is brought up, what do we get? And uh, unproven claims. And then sit there and say, oh, by the way, we're going to spend millions in each state on improving security. Really? I have the greatest lawnmower in the history of lawnmowers. Oh, it's awesome, honey. I love my lawnmower. Listen, I need to spend $500 more to improve my lawnmower. What would you say? So I just kind of thought that was uh, quite interesting. Two six nine four four one nine five nine five. Let's go back to the phone lines and uh, Rich from Battle Creek. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Hello, Rank. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good. Um, I just wanted to make a comment on the uh, Constitution being a living document. Um, uh, being a living document or a moving document or, you know, it's subject to change. Um, really doesn't fly in the fact that we have a, it is our foundation. So when you create a foundation for something, you want it to be solid. If you create a foundation for a building that moves, that building will soon fall. So if the constitution is our foundation, then if it moves, Sooner or later, the nation in which it uh, is supposed to be supporting, it will fall. Very good analogy, Rich. Very good. You're, you're right. And, and that goes along with what I was saying. Do you agree with my comment about it, or do you have uh, an issue with it? Oh, no. Absolutely, absolutely. I just wanted to give that analogy to, to uh, say, hey, you know, just to give a little bit uh, different perspective and uh, – no, that analogy is was very good, and you're right. We have to build on something solid. And if you're going to sit there and say that law is a living document, then there is no written law. It's all in the holder of the power. Yeah, it's all subject. Right, 
Right. All right, Rich. Thanks a lot for calling in. Appreciate that. You have a great day. 269-441-9595. You listen to Live with Rank. We'll be right back after this. By the way, before I jump in, because I'm going to play this song next, I wrote this very fun piece. I really had a lot of fun writing this. I titled it, Michigan Rockstar Sings His Hit Song at Karaoke Night. No one knew it was him. That is hilarious, if you ask me. I, I could just imagine. Now, obviously, if it's a Bono or Eric Clapton or a Roger Daltrey or, you know, these guys who are just super, Mick Jagger, just superstars, you're going to know who they are because they're still playing. A lot of them are still playing. But it, this guy was big. I mean, his this song I want to play for you next sold over 3 million copy, copies, triple platinum, back in 1997. He's from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was back home. I don't know where. It's not reporting where he did this. It's the video is of him through his Twitter account. So you can check that out at the piece. And he got up at some bar and restaurant, started singing his hit song. No one, no one knew it was him, you can tell. And then the guy who was running it, hey, he says something like, hey, it was a good job. Good job. Good job. Had no idea. You'll enjoy it. Go check it out. We'll play his song that he sang coming up right after this. You're listening to Live with Rank. You're listening to Live with Rank, and I want to give Brandon James a thank you. He cut that up for us. I forgot prior to the show, and he did that for us. It was very kind of him. How do I forget to cut? That's how busy I am prior to these shows, that I would forget something I was wanted to talk about like that. That song, the guy got up and sang, You've got to check out the video. Again, go to WBCKFM.com or if it's up now at WKMI. You know, I should put that up when I'm talking to you guys and find out if it's there. But definitely it'd be at WBCKFM.com. And it is hilarious. What a great idea. And he even reacted by saying, quote, I love it when they have no idea. And they had no idea. They didn't. The name of the band is The Verve Pipe. Brian Vander Ark is the lead singer from Grand Rapids, Michigan. They started out in East Lansing. And I believe this bar is somewhere in the Michigan area. Probably Lansing or who knows. Uh, if anybody can let me know, for some reason they could tell, let me know. I'd love to, uh, to know, but... That was a fun piece that uh, I thought, man, if I was a aging rock star, and again, that, that sold over 3 million copies, that album, and I think he's on 23, 24, 25 million views of their official video. So it was big, very big. Many of you may remember the verb pipe, and that, or at least that song, The Freshman. Now, let's go to Plainwell, Michigan, and Melanie, thank you so much for calling in, Melanie. Appreciate that. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Frank. Well, you really hit a nerve with this business on education funding. Um, you know, we have fewer students uh, than we've had in the public system since the 1970s, even with that mild increase that you talked about. And uh, back in 2007, we had uh, more students, less funding, and we were at 75% of third graders reading at grade level. We have record funding, uh, significantly lower enrollment, 
and we're at 44% and 44% pre-pandemic. So it's probably even lower now. 44% of third graders reading at grade level. So it appears that even with more money, our school districts cannot figure out how to teach kids to read. And I, I, for the life of me, can't figure out how students got dumber from 2007 to 2019. Well, I wanted to ask you that. Why do you think teachers these days are having such a difficulty teaching these kids how to read as you were just talking about the statistics where it appears things are getting worse as opposed to better. Is that a fair statement? It is. And I can tell you exactly why. The old school teachers who knew how to use explicit phonics to teach kids to read are either retired because they were older or they retired because they were not allowed to teach that way. We brought in Common Core, which really emphasizes whole language, which is no way to teach kids to read. And so we, we don't teach teachers now how to teach kids to read. The teachers are ill-prepared. They're taught critical race theory and uh, political activism and how to get your kids to go, you know, uh, write, make a sign or make a speech at your city council. They're not teaching them how to read, write, and do math. And I say part of, some of those teachers are okay with that. They're political activists themselves. But those young teachers who are really enthusiastic and want to be able to teach kids, they don't even realize that they haven't been taught the proper tools to be able to teach kids. And I'm talking about be able to teach all kids. Did you, you know, back in during when we had slavery, it was illegal to teach your slaves how to read. You know why? Right? Because re people who can read can earn their own freedom because they can learn things and they can do things beyond whatever someone else wants them to know. Well, we're, we're creating a whole slave set of these young people coming through schools today who, who can't read. It is scary what is going on in our public schools. I want to read something. If you can hold on, Melanie, you may want to... Uh, give us your thoughts. Texas elementary schoolers told to keep Pride Week community circles confidential. Don't tell your parents. Five-year-old students were told to keep conversations about LGBT topics confidential. Why are you talking to my five-year-old about sex? They are so sex on the brains, these people. They're, they're, it's, they're, it's almost like pedophiles or something. They want to teach these kids sex, 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 sex at five and then tell my five-year-old not to tell me? Austin Independent School District. So you think Texas, Austin is very liberal. You think in Texas it wouldn't happen, it's very liberal. It's this week. They're celebrating Pride Week and there are all their public schools. So each day of the week, they have a specific pride celebration theme. And according to the school's, that's according to the school's website. Students and staff can collect pride and ally stickers, posters, flags, pronoun buttons, and more. End quote. At the school's front office. So this goes directly to what Melanie was just saying about they're more enthused about this than teaching these kids. Pre-K. Pre-K through second grade students were reminded, quote, what we say in this room stays in this room. 
and fourth to fifth graders were asked to participate in community circles that are, quote, confidential, end quote. The curriculum reads, quote, please remember that we agreed to keep what happened in the circular confidential, in the circle confidential. Okay. How many times are they going to tell these kids that? Unbelievable. Now, the media relations specialist for the school district told the Daily Caller who reported on this that the community circles are designed to be confidential, quote, in the sense that makes students feel trusted and respected for their privacy, end quote. He went on to say, quote, it doesn't, it does not mean don't tell your parents, end quote. Really? Really? I just read to you everything they said in it. Did anything there say don't tell anybody? You can discuss it with your parents, but no one else. No, it says don't tell anybody. Melanie, if you can hold on, I got to take a break. We'll come back and get your thoughts coming on right up or coming up right after this. You're listening to the Live with Rank Show. Well, what do you think? I told you what they say. This is confidential. Don't tell anybody. Remember what we say in here stays in here. Quote, what we say in this room stays in this room. End quote. Oh, no, no. That doesn't mean don't tell the parents. It is, it is almost this this drive to have to teach pre-K and K and these young kids keep throwing sex, sex, sex into their minds. It's, it's, I'm telling you, I, it's, it's almost like pedophilia. Is that fair to say? Now it's kind of late to get into that, but uh, certainly you can give us a call, a quick call if you want, or we can talk about it tomorrow. Melanie, your thoughts. Well, I agree. It's classic grooming techniques. You know, talk about sex, make it normalized, and separate children from their parents. It's uh, it's technical. But I tell you what really bothers me are the Republicans who call themselves conservatives, who keep funding these public schools, giving them more money and more money and more money, despite declining enrollment, despite terrible performance, and despite reports like this of them teaching this and uh, to hate their own race, to hate their country. I, I just don't understand the disconnect But where our Michigan Republicans uh, continuously, year after year, vote record funding to public schools. It's, it's a tragedy. Right. I, it's a, that's a very good point. Thanks a lot for calling in, Melanie. Appreciate that. Okay. Thanks, Frank. You have a great day. Talking about pedophilia, one of the problems that this judge... Um, Brown, Mrs. Jackson, who's up for the nominee up for Supreme Court, one of the problems she has is what some feel are certainly questions that need to be answered when it comes to her sentencing people involved with child pornography. And they point to three cases, U.S. versus Hawkins. This judge, Katanja Brown-Jackson, sentenced a man convicted of possessing child pornography to three months in jail when attempting, when sentencing guidelines, I should say, called for 10, 10 years. So he was in possession of child pornography, three months, sentencing guidelines, 10 years. A separate case, U.S. versus Senate. Jackson sentenced a man convicted of possessing thousands of images of child pornography along with attempting to cross state lines to molest a nine-year-old girl to 57 months 
when the sentencing guidelines called for 97 to 121 months. Third case, U.S. First Chazen. This Jackson judge, Judge Jackson, sentenced the defendant to 28 months for possession of child pornography when sentencing guidelines called for 78 to 97 months. So they're wondering, what is going on here? Now, Andy McCarthy, who I respect, uh, believes this is the wrong uh, path to go down with her. And again, to prove to you, I would just, if I was on the left and it was on someone of, who was a nominee on the right, I would just leave it at that. But I'm not going to. Andy McCarthy, who's a respected um, assistant, former U.S. assistant attorney for the Southern District of New York, and I do respect, he has a concern with this, with this path, let's put it. Here it is. But I have certainly a question I would ask Andy about his concern. Yeah, I think that was very unfortunate on Hawley's part. There is a soft on crime case to be made against Judge Jackson, but I think the suggestion that she's soft on child pornography when you get, I, I wrote a column about this at National Review, mm -hmm. when you get into the details of what, what we're talking about, she's not talking, he's not even talking about all sex offenders or the worst sex offenders. He's talking about people who consume images of child pornography and I must say, as somebody who was a prosecutor in the system, there are a lot of pretty hard-nosed prosecutors and a lot of very conservative, tough judges who think that those penalties that Congress enacted, particularly in the, in the 1990s going forward, were way out of whack mm -hmm. in terms of the toughness on the people who are at the bottom end of offenders in, in uh, child pornography. And I think what Hawley has done is conflate all of the offenses that are under the category of sex offender and suggest that she's soft on all of that stuff. And I don't think the, the case is there for that. I think what, what she was dealing with were cases at the bottom of the system. And she's hardly the only judge who's had a problem with that. All right, Andy, then change the guidelines. All Holly was doing in this case, or whoever was doing it at this time, was mentioning that the guidelines are 10 years. You gave the person three months. The guidelines are 97 to 121 months. You gave the person 57. The guidelines are 78 to 97 months. You gave the person 28. Why? Oh, because they just possessed child pornography? Well, two of them. Andy was not quite right, uh, correct, one was attempting to cross a state line to molest a nine-year-old girl. So, okay, if you feel that way, Andy, that would be my question if I was interviewing him. Then change, advocate, especially if it's been this long that people felt this way. Advocate to change the sentencing guidelines. But I'm pretty sure anybody who's consuming that much or consuming any child pornography, they're probably on a path to no good. There is another example of how I will show you both sides of the story because that's someone on the right not happy with someone on the right or I should say not happy with their, uh, uh, the path they are going. Oh, I was going to play Ted Cruz had a great opening the other day, uh, but I just ran out of time concerning what the left has done and he called out, I think he called out, 
Yeah, he did. Biden and the rest of them who had blocked Republican, black and Hispanic nominees in the past. For all of you who are in the middle or on the left, is that fair to say that they're racist, those people? Biden and Dirk Durbin, Dick Durbin and the rest of them who blocked former his, uh, nominees for different courts because they were black and Hispanic. In fact, one office came out, I forgot the name of the senator, I'll play it for you tomorrow. They actually wrote that we cannot let Estrada, I think, go forward because he's Latin or maybe it was Rogers because she's black and she could be getting on the first, on the Supreme Court and they wanted that to go to a Democrat, I assume. We'll play that tomorrow. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the show today. Appreciate it. Hope you learned something. I certainly did. I try to every single day. Have a great day, and I'll speak to you tomorrow at 9 a.m. You're listening to Live with Rank. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.